in some ways, I think that I'm challenged when people tell me that something is not doable and I feel more inclined to try it. You can see it that way, or you can simply think that I'm masochist and I'm <laughs> looking for the hardest path all the time. Hi, I'm Belded Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'll be joined by Laura Selchik, CEO of Peptomic, a spin-off company from her research lab that aims at treating cancer with anti-MYC peptides. Laura shares with us the 20-year journey she's been on to turn her breakthrough science into a drug that can change how cancer is treated. She talks about the role of profit in realizing this purpose, the importance of people who say no, and how she's had to change to maintain progress towards her goal. Laura, welcome uh, to The Purposeful Strategist. You're the CEO of Peptomic. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and also about what Peptomic does? And I think you might have to explain just a little bit of the science there and why it's so revolutionary. Sure, it's a pleasure. So I am a scientist, first of all. Peptomic is basically the result of more than 20 years of research by myself, by my group, and by a lot of collaborators. So I work at the Valdebron Institute of Oncology in Barcelona, and my interest has always been oncology, cancer, and the aim has always been to find a better treatment for cancer. Peptomic is essentially the translation of this uh, more than 20 years of research uh, into something meaningful for patients. That's what we hope. We have started working on a function essential for all types of human cancer. It's called MYC, M-Y-C. This function is essentially music director inside a cancer cell. MYC is what decides what genes need to be transcribed inside a cell when the cell needs to divide. This is what it does in normal cells. In normal cells, basically gets activated every time a cell needs to divide. So just to give you an example, if we have a wound, MYC needs to be activated because it needs to instruct cells to close the wound, so to proliferate and close the wound. Normally, MYC stays around uh, only 20 minutes. It appears, does its job, directs the music, makes the wound close, and it disappears. This is what happens in physiological conditions, in normal conditions. However, in cancer cells, this switch is completely lost. So MYC stays around too long. It stays around all the time and keeps telling cells that they need to divide when they do not need to divide, when the wound is already closed. Probably you have already heard the expression that cancer is a wound that never heals. So it's a wound in which MYC keeps telling cells to proliferate. And this is essentially what I've been focusing on for a very long time since I was a student. I thought that we had to correct this error. We had to tell MYC to turn off when the job is done, right? So um, when I was still a student, I developed uh, a MYC inhibitor. And this is uh, something that is unusual because MYC for a very long time has been considered 
untouchable, undraggable. But when I was a student, I thought, why not? Let's try. People told me that uh, the main problem was a technical problem. MIC is an intrinsically disordered protein. That means that it changes shape all the time in solution. So the people that were trying to inhibit it were having a lot of difficulty because it was like designing a key for a lock that was changing shape all the time. You can imagine that that is a real challenge. So this difficulty in designing a key for a lock that changes shape all the time made everybody believe that this was not possible. However, I realized that uh, MIC is not always disordered. Actually, at some point, uh, it finds a partner called MAX. And when it dimerizes, so when it forms pairs with this partner, actually, it assumes a proper structure, a definite structure. And that's the time when we can intervene on it because it's not able to shape shift anymore. So what I thought was, uh, let's take advantage of this uh, moment in which Mick assumes a proper structure and let's attack it there. So what I did, I designed a fake max, a fake partner for Mick, something that could get it stuck in this conformation, this final conformation in which cannot change shape anymore. I designed a, a mini protein called Omomic, which resembles a lot Max, but it's not exactly like Max. That can uh, trap Mick in a conformation, in a status that it's inactive. Because when Mick is together with Omomic, it cannot bind the DNA anymore, so it cannot direct the music anymore. So this is what I did. And this new approach was then adopted by many other people around the world. Omomic became a tool to inhibit MIC in different contexts. And we used it to show for the first time that inhibiting MIC could be done first in cells. We saw that cancer cells would die when we expressed Omomic and normal cells would simply slow down. So that was the beauty of it, that we were not damaging normal cells. We were really, really being selective for cancer cells only. Then I was told that in order to show that this was in any way meaningful in terms of a therapy, I had to show it in animals. And that was a huge problem for me because I didn't want to do animal experimentations. But then I realized that it was the only way to show that this was safe, and could be really pharmacologically useful. So I packed my bags. Back then I was still you know, in Italy, in Rome, and I went to the States, to San Francisco. And there I made my first transgenic mouse with Omomic. What does that mean? That I had a mouse that could express an extra gene, something that uh, normally mice do not have, an extra gene coded for Omomic. So I had a switch I could turn on Omomic or turn it off. And this for me was really important because I wanted to make sure not to in any way harm the animals. So the first animals I worked with, I had uh, skin tumors, and then I started working with lung tumors. And uh, I had my weapon, I had Omomic, I could turn it on and off. And I realized that every time I turned on Omomic, the tumors would disappear. And this was, for us, it was mind-blowing. We expected to stop the tumor stopping the music director and instead the tumors really regressed, disappeared, vanished. And that was really, really amazing and exciting. So 
this was published the first time in 2008 in Nature. And we were able to show not only that there was this dramatic impact on the tumors, but that this approach was absolutely safe for other organs and other tissues. So the animals were completely fine. And this was, of course, my main goal from the beginning. Thinking it was something that could be efficient, but also not toxic. I know too many people in cancer that have cancer that decide not to undergo treatments anymore because of the side effects that they experience. So I wanted to find something better there. And... Just to make a long story short, uh, I decided that Omomica had to become a drug. And so instead of working with transgenic mice, I needed a pharmacological tool, a drug. And we realized that uh, the purified Omomic mini protein had cell penetrating ability. So we could produce Omomic simply in bacteria. And Omomic could be added to cells or given to animals and would find its way inside the cells, specifically cancer cells, and inactivate them, kill them. So just so I can kind of check that I understand what you've said there, with the mice, you did something that altered the, the actual genetics of the mouse, so it produced this homomic. But going forward, for use in people, the plan is to create it as a chemical, as a drug, separately, and then just like you take a pill, aspirin or whatever, you take it and it goes into your body and it goes where it needs to go and does what it needs to do. That's correct. Uh, working with transgenic mice means using gene therapy, modifying their genome, something that we cannot do with uh, human patients. So we had to find a tool, something that could be administered to patients. In our case, our drug can be administered either intranasally or intravenously. Intranasally, we can reach organs such as, the, for example, the lung or the brain, because there is a route that goes straight into the brain. But in order to reach all the organs and also the metastatic sites, we adopt intravenous administration. So we give a, an injection inside the, uh, the blood. Yeah. So not as a pill, but you get it into the body. Exactly. I'm sure I really only understand about half of what you've explained there. But I, I think I get the basic sense that you've identified a key thing that goes wrong in every cancer, lots of different cancers, I'm not sure which, and you found a way to sort of turn it off to, to stop that. Yes, that's actually something really important. Uh, MIC and deregulation of MIC is common to all types of uh, cancers. And it's different from our approach to cancer in general. Normally, we focus on the oncogenes that are mutated in cancer because we assume that they are the real drivers of tumorigenesis. In this case, MIC makes an exception. MIC is not found mutated in cancer, so very often it's ignored. But actually, all the mutations that we find in cancer make use of MIC as their transcription factor, as their music director inside the nuclei to direct uh, cell proliferation. So this is the opposite of personalized medicine. We have heard that we need to know all the mutations that are present in cancer and tailor a different therapy for each of them. In this case, what I'm telling you is that uh, it doesn't matter which mutation the cancer has. All these mutations will use MIC as their main effector the bad guy inside the nuclei. 
So we have an amazing opportunity here that attacking MIC would allow us to intervene in many oncological indications, many different ones. The next step, of course, was to go from experimental models to something uh, uh, useful in the clinic. These are the steps that took from me most of the effort because I had only worked in a lab until then, and I had to learn how to bring this to the clinic, create a company, learn about business, try to talk about this in a completely different way, in a different language, etc. So, so if if I've got it right, the purpose of Peptomic is to bring this therapy to market, to get it through the clinical trials and regulatory hurdles and all that so it can actually be used with people. Is that right or is there a different way you might describe it? No, that's that's perfect. The only thing is that we, we will not probably lead it all the way to the market. We expect a pharma to come before then and help us to develop this actually until the market. The clinical trial is run by a pharma because it requires huge amount of resources and the funding. And that's where pharmas have much more capacity to do it. So Peptomic has uh, brought already this new drug to the clinic. We started the clinical trials last year in 2021. So I'm particularly excited because this journey has lasted more than 20 years. And so we managed to produce the, the protein, these protein bacteria with purity that is sufficient for patients. And we brought it to patients in this first clinical trial. Clinical trials have different stages. No? We have just completed the phase one. What does that mean? The phase one of a clinical trial is the phase in which a new drug that has never been used in humans has to show, first of all, safety. Safety. So it's the first time that it's given to something that is different from uh, mice or rats. And so... What we did in this case was to start uh, dosing patients with uh, very low doses of the drug, make sure that those doses were safe, and then we were able to increase the amount uh, little by little. This is called also dose escalation phase because that's what we do. We increase the dosing little by little to make sure that we are not harming the patients. In all these, uh, we are, of course, looking for signs of efficacy, but it's not the primary endpoint of the study. The primary endpoint of the study is the safety. And that's the main concern of the old study, that patients are not harmed. Then we, of course, uh, tried to see whether the drug was working. And uh, in this case, the results of the phase one are really, really encouraging. They will be presented at the end of the month uh, uh, internationally. And it's the first MIC inhibitor in history to complete a phase one clinical trial and to be ready to go ahead with the rest of the study. And it's completely safe. So I'm really happy to say that the safety that we had seen in animals is true also for patients. And we also saw first signs of efficacy. And we were able to do this study in all camera solid tumors, because as I said, MIC is, has a role in different oncological indications. So we were able to open the study to different patients. And we have seen the activity of the drug in different types of tumors, which was another really exciting uh, part of the study. So you've been on a 20 plus year journey. W would you say that 
your purpose anyway, has been the same throughout those 20 years, or has it shifted, grown, changed? No, the goal has always been to make a difference for cancer patients. The goal from the very beginning was to develop something safer and efficacious for cancer treatment. But I really focused on this aspect of safety because, again, I believe that most of the drugs that we give to oncological patients are really, really too toxic, almost poisons, hoping that the poison would kill the cancer before killing the patient. They come with a huge cost in terms of quality of life, and we should think this better. Cancer patients have their life disrupted in so many ways, and I believe that taking care of the quality of life is as important as uh, giving them an effective treatment. So if we then just turn to peptomic, clearly you said you've had to learn a lot about business and forming a business rather than doing research. Would you say your personal purpose and peptomic's organizational purpose are pretty much the same? Um, the two things are definitely aligned, but I see Peptomic mostly as a tool, as the way to make this path more efficient and accelerate the process. I definitely had to change and acquire many more skills. It's very different than my work as a CEO of a company compared to the principal investigator in a research lab. And I am extremely lucky because I can keep both hats so I'm still doing basic research, translational research and discovering in the lab, while I also follow my dream of bringing this new drug to patients. That's not always possible. And I'm really lucky to be able to do both things. But as I said, I definitely had to learn to think of my project also in a different way. I had to think of how to show that it could be profitable because uh, developing a drug as a huge costs. It cannot be done only with public funding. It needs to be done with private investment too. And investment needs to have a profit at the end of the day. And so I had to start thinking of my project as something profitable as well, which uh, at the beginning sounds really bad because you think that you're switching to the dark side. It's not. It's part of the process. Mm. And, you know, it's like when you patent for the first time your idea you know, you want your idea to be as public and as accessible as possible, but then you realize that patenting your idea is essential for somebody to find it interesting in terms of investment. So the two things need to go together. Sure. The important thing is to remember what's your ultimate uh, objective, which is helping the patients. So that's something that I kept in mind. Yeah. So it sounds like that purpose existed sort of before Peptomic. Was there a process you kind of had to go through to share your purpose and to kind of redefine it for a business? How did other people get involved in this? How did they sort of come to share that? I had a lot of friends and people that accompanied me in this journey, of course. In the case of Peptomic, Peptomic uh, was created and founded by myself and by Marie-Ève Beaulieu, 
who initially was a postdoc in my lab that was uh, following this project. And eventually, when we saw that this could lead to the development of a drug, we decided to create the company. We filed the first patent to protect the use of this cell-penetrating mini-protein. It's not trivial for a protein to penetrate cells. Eh? So the discovery that our protein could do it was actually really, really novel and allowed us to file the first patent. And from that, we created the company and we started developing the whole process together. And during the journey, other people People joined, so we now have a chief medical officer, a chief financial officer. At the beginning, when you create a company, we had to do all the job alone and learn the skills. Then when you start growing, you have to learn how to delegate. You have to take on board the experts in all the different things, you know. A clinical trial needs a chief medical officer that uh, designs the trial and takes care of the conversation with the different hospitals and sites and so on. At the beginning, we didn't need a chief financial officer until the company grew. We had significant investment. And at that point, uh, I really want a chief financial officer <laughs> to advise me <laughs> and take care of the whole business. I'm a scientist. I can learn about business. But the best way to do this is with people that already have that experience and can really direct you. Trial and error is something that uh, helps, but it also means that things are done more slowly. And in our case, we want this to get to the patients as quickly as possible. And Peptomic, I mean, in terms of people or money or whatever, how big is it now? We are 15 people now. We have several people that still take care of experiments at the bench, but we also have people that have become project manager and follow specific aspects in, within the company. A lot of these people came from experience first in my lab. There were PhD students in my lab that got so enthusiastic about seeing an idea translated to clinical practice that they decided to follow the project of switching to Peptomic. Some others just came from the outside. We shared lab space and there is a lot of synergy. Science is at the basis of this. It's our strength. And I think that's key for the success of uh, new products in the clinic. The real ideas come from labs. And it's so important that somebody recognizes the value of those ideas and decides to bring them further. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would you say the strategy of Peptomic is? The strategy of Peptomic is uh, essentially to bring uh, this uh, novel therapeutic uh, to patients as quickly and efficiently as possible, impacting uh, most of the patients uh, as quickly as possible. We have a drug uh, potentially useful for different oncological indications. However, during the journey, you have to make practical decisions. Uh, you have to decide in which oncological indication you start with. And that's a process that uh, it's painful because you have to prioritize who are you going to help first? In this case, we are trying to identify which oncological indications are most unmet needs uh, in oncology. We want to identify those oncological indications in which we could have uh, an immediate impact, in which we can really make a difference more quickly. No? So this is the strategy that we're implementing at the moment. How are you going about developing that strategy? Who gets involved? How long does it take? Those sorts of things. 
So this type of decisions are taken uh, together with experts. So we have a very strong scientific advisory board made of oncologists, of medical doctors that direct our decisions and inform us on how the clinical practice changes all the time. We have the luck of being in one of the biggest hospitals for clinical trials in Europe. And so we are constantly informed by the new uh, protocols that are implemented in the hospital. And that also informs us on which unmet needs uh, are the most urgent ones. Of course, we also need to take into account market. And in this case, uh, in our scientific advisory board, we also have some industrial members that also tell us uh, how the, the market interest changes over time. Because uh, to give our drug the best chances, we also need to take into account in which market they will be able to enter. So it sounds like you've got a fairly small, you know, sort of core team. But then when you're developing the strategy, you're actually drawing on lots and lots of input from people who have a connection with you, but aren't necessarily employees. No. And during this whole process, uh, that's interesting because my grant writing taught me something as a, a researcher. And now I'm uh, asking for money from a completely different source. You know? I, I, I feel sometimes that I've been a beggar all my life <laughs> because I'm constantly asking for money before for research purposes and now to fund the development of the drug. But it's a very useful process because every time I talk to investors or pharma that are the ultimate clients at the end of a product like this, I really need to be actively listening to their feedback. They make requests, they criticize us for some of our decisions, and it's really important to learn and uh, get positive and constructive criticism. Most of the no's that I got uh, along the way really taught me something. So uh, from every no, I learned something really useful. You've been on this journey for quite a long time. Where in that journey did Peptomic as a company sort of come into existence? Peptomic was uh, founded the in December 2014. Okay, so it's been a while. <laughs> yes. So the reason why we created it very quickly in December was that uh, we wanted to apply for public grants and we needed to show that we had a company. And so we had to create it very quickly in December because in January there was first grant call that we wanted to apply for. And that's how we got to create it. And because of the need of having a CEO in the company, that's how I became a CEO initially. I thought, okay, I will assume the role of CEO and then I'll pass it on to somebody else. And instead I realized that uh, I could do it, that I could grow together with my company as long as I was an asset and not a weakness for the company. You know? So far, I'm still the CEO. It's been a very interesting uh, journey. Anyway, so we created Peptomic in December 2014, but actually the first private investment only came in 2016. In the meantime, we survived doing research with lab money and grants uh, and applied for public grants uh, that were very small, but enough to be operational to start. When uh, the private investment came in, the seed round came in in 2016, we were able to increase the size of the team and start being much more operational. So if you think about the journey you've been on, and particularly since sort of Peptomic got created as a business, 
What have you found that's most surprising about that, particularly around wrestling with the questions of strategy and purpose? So I think that what I found surprising, and now with hindsight, of course I don't, but during the process I did, was that our development plan changed several times. So for example, at the beginning, we thought that Peptomic would develop a product for brain tumors. We had realized that this intranasal administration could bypass the blood-brain barrier, and so we could administer directly the drug to the brain, and we saw some very encouraging results there. Then we realized that the intranasal administration had several complications. For example, cancer patients have their mucosa, the nasal mucosa, damaged by chemo. So the absorption of a patient versus another could be different. And so controlling the dosing was particularly challenging. So when we started talking about this intranasal delivery to the brain, people started questioning our choice. In the meantime, we were generating data with the intravenous administration that I mentioned. So we were able to show that our drug, Omomic, was able to travel through the bloodstream. And so at that point, uh, we decided to explore this different avenue. The bloodstream and the intravenous administration really allows for controlled dosing of the drugs, and it's very well accepted. So we switched from uh, brain tumors as a priority to all solid tumors all over the body. It was a very good switch also because it increased uh, the, ch the chances to reach more organs, of course. But at the beginning, it was a challenging because we were told that a mini protein would never survive enough in the bloodstream. It was one of those, again, preconceived notions out there. Instead, our protein survives really, really well the bloodstream. That was one of the big changes in strategy of the company. Mm -hmm. what, both from what we've discussed today in our previous conversation, I get the sense that you've often decided to do something that everybody says either can't be done or is the wrong thing to do. What gives you the, I don't know, confidence, courage, whatever, belief? Where does that come from? First of all, it's a scientific attitude, right? You don't dismiss anything without trying it. And I got really upset at the beginning when they told me that uh, me could not be inhibited. And I just thought, why did you try? <laughs> so let's try first. And then I was told it's going to have catastrophic side effects in normal tissues. And again, I said, where is the data? Tell me, how can you say that? Then when we finally showed that it was working in cells, people told me, yeah, but cells are one thing. Animals are another thing. If you want to show that something is safe, you have to do the experiment in animals. When we did the experiment in mice and we saw that the mice were completely fine, they told me human tumors are completely different compared to mouse tumors. Mouse tumors are simpler. So you have to do the experiment in human tumors. So we started working with patient samples and human tumors and we showed that that worked. And at that point, they told me, yeah, but you have it easy. You're working with a transgenic protein. This is not a drug. And uh, again, they told me that Omomi could never be a drug because it was a protein too big and bulky to ever be a drug. Again, they had not tried it. Uh, so in some ways, I think that I'm challenged when people tell me that something is not doable and I feel more inclined to try it. You can see it that way, or you can simply think that I'm masochist and I'm <laughs> looking for the hardest path all the time. I don't know. It's, it's one or the other. 
What's been the most difficult part for you? Oh, identifying the most difficult is hard because uh, there were ups and downs all the time. There is a lot of resilience uh, during those times, but that's also the life of a scientist. Uh, There are days in which nothing works in a lab and days in which uh, you have the eureka and everything is worth it. That happened a lot during the journey. This fight against skepticism was really frustrating uh, many, many times. Then I found particularly difficult finding funding for my new ideas. Uh, It's much easier to get funding for something that follows uh, paths that are already there. Pioneering new things is really hard. There is a high risk behind pioneering projects. Grant agencies or investors are risk adverse. But then you find grant agencies that instead recognize the difference that you can make, and those are really valuable. Sure. I feel like I kind of need to mention here, particularly just given what you were saying, uh, that we met through Helen Rippon, the chief exec at Worldwide Cancer Research. And I could be wrong, but I have the sense they were one of the people who was willing to say, yeah, that's fine. This is great. This is different. That's what we're looking for. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, Worldwide Cancer Research made a huge difference for my lab, for my project. Uh, It was one of those times in which uh, I was proposing our ideas and I was not getting much funding. And... uh, Uh, Worldwide Cancer Research believed in the project and uh, gave us a grant in 2012. Wow, that really was early. That was before Peptomic. That was, yeah, very early. So actually that allowed us to establish some proof of principle and uh, show that the protein could be purified and used as a drug. Until then, I had done only work with transgenic mice. So... If I had not done that extra step to show that it could be used as a drug, none of this would be possible for patients. Worldwide cancer research definitely made a difference. It was a very important time also because I had opened my independent lab in 2011. And uh, the first years of a new lab are really, really crucial. That was definitely huge help. What advice, if any, might you give to, I'll say a business leader, but it could be anyone who's wrestling with an organization's purpose and how to connect it to the strategy? What advice might you have? So first of all, I would like to remind everybody that the driving force needs to be the purpose. And that has to be kept in mind during the whole journey. Let's not forget why we got involved in this journey and the ultimate goal of this journey because it's easy to get distracted and uh, we shouldn't. The other thing, of course, is to help the project building the proper team. The team makes a huge difference Uh, and it needs to be a very diverse team. It cannot be a team on our image. We need to have... uh, diverse uh, members in the team because otherwise you can talk to the mirror (laughs) instead uh, you really want to surround yourself with people with different experience with different abilities Uh, you learn a lot uh, and uh, that's the only way to find synergy I really cherish now the changing countries the changing languages uh, and all the things that I learned uh, along the way following my dream was tough because I had to leave my country my family my friends uh, but that 
that also meant that I had the chance to meet new cultures, to learn from uh, completely new people. Uh, I lived first in Italy, then in the States uh, for 10 years. Now I've been here in Spain for 11 years. Uh, I had the chance to surround myself uh, with an international environment. I'm very proud to say that between Peptomic and uh, the lab, we have nine different nationalities in the group. And that's something that I love. I just think that uh, it's something that really helps uh, the, the brainstorming and the generation of new ideas. Very good. Well, again, look, I've been fascinated just to hear a bit more about your story. I, when I first heard it, I, I thought, this is great. We've got to have her as a guest. And I'm really glad you could join us. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much, Belden. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.